Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. During this unprecedented period impacting us all, we are creating and sharing some extra episodes that we hope you find available, either particularly timely or relevant or that allow for some distraction. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series and we hope that you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Corey Martin, a customer solutions architect at Heroku. Today we're talking about the future of enterprise security software. Joining me is Jason Meller, co-founder and CEO of Collide, which is taking a more user-centric approach to the software many of us use every day without even knowing it. Jason, welcome to Codish. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with what enterprise security software is and how it normally works, since many of us never directly see it. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty broad question, but I think that it's really evolved over the last 10 years. It might be helpful if I kind of talk a little bit about how I got started at a really big company, GE, back in 2010 and what it meant there. Sure. So I started the company right at after college, and I was sort of in their MBA equivalency program, but I was super technical and I really didn't fit in with that style of program. And what ended up happening was during that time period was around the same time that a lot of companies in the United States and abroad were starting to get attacked by um, what was sort of being whispered about as this thing called the advanced persistent threat, which now is kind of well known, uh, at least in my circles, as, as, as China, actually, you know, the, the state of China, not individuals in China, but their actual military. And what they were looking to do was to actually gather as much intellectual property and information from American companies so they could replicate a lot of that uh, and kind of send it over to Chinese businesses, kind of bolster them up. And also for companies that were working with the Department of Defense, they really wanted to get as much intelligence as they could on any sort of military development. Like, you know, we had GE Aviation, so the Chinese were obviously really interested in anything that we were doing uh, for the Department of Defense. So this all started around the time uh, I was a couple years into GE and I'd always been really into security and I had this great opportunity to really start my career on what was called like the computer incident response team. So back in those days, it wasn't called just cyber security. You know, that term was still kind of new. People were still calling it information security. And Still to this day, it's it's very much a model that's reliant on what I would call to surveillance, what maybe others would call detection. And what we did at, uh, at the GE Cert was we serviced all of the other you know sub businesses of GE. And you got to remember at the time, this is 2010, 2009, GE had a lot of businesses. We're not just talking about like the one I just mentioned, like GE Aviation. And when we think of GE, we're always thinking about like the appliances and the dishwashers and the refrigerators. Sure. We yeah. also had healthcare. We had GE Money, which was a major credit card processor. Uh, we had NBC Universal. We owned all of NBC and all of the Universal Studios. So around this time period, we were dealing things like, you know, the Chinese Olympics, the Summer Games, things like that. They all kind of created this massive security need that we had to fill, you know, at, from a central sort of team. So we were talking about, you know, monitoring 300,000 endpoints, employees, and it was it was a lot to do for for, for a very small team. Ooh, how so, large was the team? Yeah, yeah. So we started off really small. I joined the team kind of in the second wave of when they were kind of recruiting internally for smart folks to 
to really be there. And I was an intelligence analyst. And I think when I started on the team, we were 10, 11, fo- 10 or 11, 12 folks. That would be considered, I think, a smaller cert now. But back mm-hmm. in those days, dedicated teams inside of companies just weren't really the norm. And now mm-hmm. you'll, you'll see even like major retailers and things like that. These, these teams can span, you know, whole departments, 40, 50, 60 people. That's, that's usually the norm. And you also have to kind of remember sort of like how the federal government is set up with states. Same with GE. We had GE corporate, which is what I work for. And then all these sub businesses that I talked about, they kind of had their own little security teams as well. And we were there to kind of provide these meta resources for them and to kind of cover, cover the things that they didn't necessarily have an incentive to look at. Got it. Yeah. So going back to what is enterprise security, how does it relate? So at the GE cert, we sort of really bet everything on monitoring the network. So kind of getting a little bit more technical, 2010, 2011, not every website was SSL encrypted. Um, so we had really the ability to monitor all the traffic that was happening. We started off at the edges. Uh, we look at like things that were go- traversing the VPN, really anything going in and out of the company. And then we would have simple rules on what was called intrusion detection software. Um, and we would look for patterns that looked like something bad was happening. When I started, you know, I was working with a lot of folks that were ex-military because the Air Force had heavily invested in training folks in, on cybersecurity. So there was a lot of talent there. You know, I was sort of adopted into that mindset of we were the good guys against the bad guys. We were going up against the nation state that had, you know, military resources that were targeting our organization. And I felt like very proud and almost patriotic to be doing that. And it kind of, at least initially, kind of gave me this attitude that, you know, it's great that we have all this access to all this data that we're getting over the network. And eventually we got information on the devices themselves, you know, by installing an endpoint agent. And we had all this data, but we felt okay about that morally because we were the good guys and we were doing everything in our power to really stop something really bad from help it, you know, happening to our, to our employer. So that was sort of my first thought process and everything was going great over the first few months. And we were dealing with real incidents. Like this wasn't a made up problem. We were definitely, you know, responding to real attacks that were happening in the organization. But there was an instance where something happened and uh, it really completely changed my perspective on what does it mean to be a good guy who has access to all this data. So one evening we got pinged because we saw an alert in our network monitoring tool that indicated some person in India was zipping up all these files, encrypting them, and then sending them over to this sort of shady looking FTP site. This is like a prime indicator, like it's the MO of you know, the Chinese ABT for how they operate. They kind of stage everything on one device, they encrypt it, and they zip it up. They usually use WinRAR or something like that. And then they send it over to kind of like a, a FTP site um, with, you know, just basic credentials. So this is a red alert situation. Red alert situation. Now, it was interesting. This is the first time that we actually caught it in progress. So we could actually see the transfer happening in progress. We couldn't see what was in it, but it fit all the criteria. So we were really excited. We called up our boss, which called up their boss, and it really all the way went up to the top of the food chain. Because what we wanted to do is we wanted permission to be able to sort of hack back and actually stop, uh, not only stop the transfer, but actually take the credentials of the FTP server, which we could see, go into that FTP server and then delete everything that they had actually successfully exfiltrated. That's a That was a really big deal and we needed special permission to do that, which we got. So... 
everything went according to plan. We were able to stop the transmission. We went on the FTP server and we deleted everything. And man, we were, we were so excited. We were like slapping each other on the back, you know, high-fiving. Like this was a huge, huge milestone for us as a computer instant response team. And then days later, we realized we hadn't stopped anything at all. We had actually done something really, really bad. We uh, actually didn't detect a real exfiltration event. And what ended up happening is we somehow misidentified some contractor that worked for G, uh, you know, who was just simply backing up and transferring their family photos to like their personal FTP server. Oh, yeah. So we ended up basically annihilating their backups. And then on top of that, we had, you know, there was obviously an investigation that went on afterwards because we wanted to identify what really happened. You know, we had stopped the activity, but we wanted to, you know, write the whole incident report, really understand how the data got there. And in the course of doing this, of course, we identified who the employee was and everything. And we were like, oh, this was clearly a mistake. But I guess like the wheels of justice at GE were already turning. And I believe that employee uh, ended up getting terminated because they were doing something they really shouldn't have been doing. And that really left a really bad taste in my mouth because here was someone where, sure, you know, they were doing some personal thing at work, but like, don't we all do that stuff a little bit anyway? And they ended up getting fired for it because we overreacted to something that we were like 95% sure was the activity that we were looking for. And we were supposed to be the good guys. And we ended up, in my opinion, kind of causing a lot of harm to that person. And that totally changed my perspective on, you know, this sort of good guy, bad guy mentality. And even with the best of intentions, you may end up actually causing more harm than you intend to. So how did that lead you to start a new kind of cyber security company? Yeah, so that was sort of a very formative moment in my career. And it didn't just like change my perspective like a light switch, but it really did put me on pause and really try to think about the privacy implications of what we do. And I eventually got into the mode of, you know, building software instead of actually, you know, doing the actual incident response work. And um, I tried to kind of be mindful about that privacy portion, everything that I built. Eventually, when I, you know, I started Collide in uh, 2016, the reason why I started was I was really excited by this open source agent that, you know, of all companies, Facebook put together. Because um, to me, having transparency in the code that, you know, is doing this sort of detection on the endpoint, I think is really important. A lot of the uh, security vendors that are out there today that do endpoint security, which essentially consists of, you know, you put an agent that's sort of monitoring the hardware and the operating system, and then sends all that telemetry to, you know, sort of a server. And that server gives you analysis on what's going on and looks for threats. Everybody on the market today, they really protect the agent in terms of what it can do, the source code, because those are like the crown jewels of that organization. And Facebook had the complete opposite approach where they kind of rejected all of the existing solutions on the market. They didn't really scale and they were very Windows focused. And obviously Facebook is heavily Mac OS focused on the workstation side and then Linux focused on on their server. So they built this great tool, OS Query. So um, I saw an opportunity to really build something in the space where you could start with an endpoint solution that was transparent um, from the perspective of the source code is open. And then could you really build something on top of that that was compelling and equivalent to the existing endpoint detection and response products on the market? So that was like the genesis of the company. 
But this was in 2016, and I still hadn't wrapped my head around the second phase of that, which is sure, you know, the open source agent is transparent in the sense that you can review the code, but I we hadn't really done anything. We were still very much catering to the security team and sort of leaving the end users away from that. So we built several products on top of that concept, and um, they all did reasonably well, but not to the point where um, I thought, we, you know, we were really taking off like a rocket ship. And so the beginning of 2019, I had an opportunity with my team to kind of hit the reset button. And you know what? I, we were just like, let's start from scratch and let's really build something that embodies the values that I have as the CEO and that we have as an organization around privacy and what we call, um, you know, end user focused security, where you're really kind of treating those folks as first class citizens. So that was sort of how the journey eventually ended up where we're today, um, where we have a product that's really focused on that as a value. Wow. So if I'm a user, my company uses Collide. What is that experience like for me? What difference would I see from your typical endpoint protection agent software? The way that I would describe Collide today to anybody who asks whether you're the actual end user who's getting this installed on their device, or you're even the security team that might be you know, buying it, Collide is essentially an app and it detects security issues on your company's devices. And then it pings your employees on Slack with advice on how to fix those issues. And that's it. The reality is, is that we focus on not just things like, oh, is my disk encryption, is my firewall enabled? But we also look for things that people typically get wrong. Like, oh, I, you know, I, I signed up for G Suite for my organization and they asked me to download some two-factor backup codes. Well, I just threw those in my downloads folder. Maybe, uh, you know, you don't necessarily want to do that. You want to put them in, you know, in a, a password repository. Or I'm, you know, downloading a production backup because I need to troubleshoot something and I'm an engineer. Well, that backup shouldn't live on your system for uh, a period of time, more than maybe 24 hours. Right. So we try to really take a human approach where we have empathy for the types of things that you need to do in order to get work done. We can detect that, you know, you might be creating risk for you and your organization. And instead of just like locking down the device, like let's enforce everything, you know, we're going to turn this off. We're going to make it impossible for you to turn your firewall off. Let's instead just look for those things and those things alone and then put a hand on your shoulder through Slack and say, hey, we noticed you turned your firewall off. Um, you know, when you're done with whatever you're doing that requires that to be off, you should turn it back on. And here's exactly how you do it. And here's even a button in the Slack application where you can click it and then we'll just tell you if you did it right or not in terms of turning it back on. Developers must love this because so many times, you know, we got to use Docker, but then the security software freaks out or, or we end up hitting limitations. And it sounds like with your software, you're not immediately restricting the user. You're letting them know when something is off and letting them fix it. That's exactly right. And this is all based on the premise that, especially as a software engineer, in order to do your job, you need to modify the security stance of your device. And usually with the best of intentions, like you just mentioned Docker, we had one engineer who was telling us a story about how the firewall was forced on on their Mac and they were having issues with Docker. They assumed it was the firewall, so they went to their system preferences to turn it off. But of course, they had management and software installed where that couldn't happen. You know, it was grayed out and they didn't have the administrative privilege to, to deal with that. 
So then they had to put in a ticket and then they had to wait and they were waiting and waiting and waiting and several days go by. And then they're given sort of special permission to turn off the firewall. And then they turn it off and then they realize there's still an issue. And it turns out the issue had nothing to do with the firewall. But because they didn't have the opportunity to troubleshoot it themselves, they couldn't actually go through that process. And they just sort of hyper-focused on this one thing. And that's like not good for anybody. I think that that's like a mistake for the business to kind of have these sort of blanket enforcements. And I also think it's a mistake to have nothing. So I think this is really kind of like a nice compromise between those two things. And it treats the end users like they're adults and that they're capable of making intelligent decisions, but gives them the information um, in order to get their computer back to where it needs to be. If you forget to turn on the firewall, for instance, after turning it off. When you approached your first potential customers and said, we have this new way of doing enterprise security. You don't need these blanket restrictions. You can help the user fix it for themselves. How did you pitch it and how did they respond? We're a small company, we're a startup. And so when you have a brand new idea with this, it's very important, I think, to start with people that get it right away. You don't want to do a lot of convincing for your first you know, five or six customers because it may make you feel like you're headed in the wrong direction. So the folks that we started off with, it was a very easy pitch and it's very similar to how I just walked through it. And it made sense to them because the the first few customers that we've had on the solution were other SaaS companies. They had large contingents of engineers who were exactly going through this problem. They were suspicious of the existing you know, security software that they were evaluating. And there was this big cultural issue with, oh, wow, you know, we're a startup, but now because you know we have to quote unquote grow up, we're now installing all this like surveillance software. And these companies, they were doing it because they felt like they had to. There were no alternatives out there. So for our first customers, it was a very easy sell. But then, you know, you exhaust that pool of, you know, true believers, I would say. And mm-hmm. then you move on to people that, you know, there's an education process involved. And I think from our perspective, the best solution that we've had is to really start with software engineers because that's it's easy to understand. But where people kind of get caught up, they assume oh, this really is only for developers. This is very, it would be way too technical to have someone you know, manage their firewall this way. And I push back pretty heavily on that. Um, and I think people realize over time that this isn't just something for like your super technical folks. This works for everybody in your organization. And sure, you, know, you may have some folks who are totally disengaged and they just want you to take over their computer and really lock it down for them. But I would uh, argue that those folks are in the minority in, your, in, in the situation. And I think, we can sort of start dropping this cynical approach that we take to information technology and cybersecurity that the users really don't care or they don't want to learn. Um, I think that may have been true 10, 15 years ago, but our workforce has evolved. You know, the people that are in the workforce today grew up with these devices. They know them um, way more than I think people that, you know, saw this technology developed after they had joined the workforce. And we're in a position where people want to take that ownership and they derive a lot of a lot of productivity if they have full control over their device. So I want to zoom in on that a bit. Uh, For non-developer users, how do you make the messaging friendly and make it sort of not not scary or not overly complex so that the user is actually empowered to act on it? Yeah, this is really hard. And this is something that we had to learn through trial and error because Ironically, we started off as too friendly, which you didn't could you wouldn't imagine <laughs> it's possible. But if you're a little bit too friendly, it can kind of come off as 
condescending. Like everything ends in an exclamation mark and, oh my God, we're doing security together and it's so much yeah. fun. Like uh -huh. we kind of hit that direction a little bit too hard and it took away a little bit from the sincerity of the product. If you go too much the other direction, here's a perfect example. We see a lot of non-technical folks that had a technical person over their shoulder configure something for them really quick. And I'm doing air quotes right now. And then put them in a state where their device wasn't secure. Like they added an SSH key so that they could like upload a markdown file to like a blog that's hosted on GitHub or something. And they end up with this insecure state. And then now we're pinging them about, oh, you have an unencrypted SSH key that looks like it has something to do with production on your system. And this is a person that doesn't even know what an SSH key is. So how do we deal with that? Well, through trial and error, there are things that you can do to walk them through the process of first, let's treat them like adults and let's explain what this is and why it's a problem. A lot of security companies skip over that if they're even communicating at all. So what is an SSH key? What does an unencrypted SSH key mean? What is the risk to your organization? Why is it important that you fix it? So we start every message off with something like that type of a preamble. And then when we go into the step-by-step -step instructions, we're talking in terms that are friendly to someone who's already familiar with things like the terminal, but we're also talking in terms where people who may have never used the terminal before can get through it. Like here's a perfect example. Like when you're in the terminal and you know you type sudo and you're prompted for your password, it's normal for like you and me to know that when I type on the keyboard, no characters are showing up because you know we've done it a thousand times and right. you know, we've gone through that experience. But someone else who's never done that before, they may think their keyboard is broken or that something's wrong or they don't understand what's happening. And there's, there's little nuggets of information that we can put in those steps that don't disrupt the advanced users, but help someone like that get through the process. So it's really a balance and you have to be not too zany. You have to also not be too serious. And it varies from culture to culture and, and you know, level of expertise. And we're still finding that balance, but it's hard. And we luckily we have enough customers where we can really hone it over time. And there's a lot of value in that. So they give you feedback? Oh, all the time, all the time. We get a lot of feedback and we iterate on it really quickly. And luckily we've been in the position so far where all that feedback has been universally applicable. Um, eventually though, at some point as we grow and we start dealing with cultures that have different norms or different languages, we're going to have to expand. But I'm looking forward to that as someone who's really into user experience uh, and the intersection between that and security. I think it's a lot of fun and it's, it's something that I think is relatively ignored in our industry. So really basic question, Jason, as a novice at this stuff uh, myself, how do you know what to look for? What security issues might pose a problem in the first place? User-focused security, which is what we practice, really starts with empathy. And that's really being able to visualize the needs of the folks that are using the devices every day and trying to understand where risk might exist there. Now, it's e very easy for developers to empathize with other developers that have similar workflows. But where the, what the key is, is can you empathize with people that are outside of your normal workflow and, and come up with things that are going to be compelling to them? Because we take this approach, what's really interesting about our product is that we tend to find issues with the folks that are at the top of the food chain of these companies, like the CISOs <laughs> and the CTOs. They, they will enroll their device and suddenly they have like 15 alerts even though they may already have a security product that isn't alerting on anything. And it's because we're able to visualize the entire chain of risk from start to finish. Like, you know, let's take Heroku, for instance. You know, we have folks that use Heroku all the time and, you know, we can think through, wow, 
you know, what's one thing that someone might do wrong with Heroku? Okay, well, they may download a production backup, you know, from from the user interface. They may, you know, store their two-factor codes in their downloads folder. They may inappropriately, you know, store their credentials for the command line tool in these areas. Those are all things that we know are happening because we use Heroku and we can encode that type of rule set into our solution. And suddenly any developer CTO who is really kind of getting their company started and kind of cut a few corners here and there, and they know they weren't doing the right thing. Suddenly we've caught those issues and now they're front and center. You know, we have a, you know, Slack app actually telling you about them. And I think that's really powerful. And I think that's the key is, you know, sitting down, visualizing that, and that really is combined with talking to folks and really understanding the workflow. So we do a lot of both of those things, and it's worked out really, really well. Well, since you mentioned Heroku, I want to talk about your infrastructure journey and how you ended up hosting on Heroku and and what your stack looks like now and your feelings about it. Yeah, so we're a much different company from a technology perspective than when we started. Like most startups, when we started, we had a very, I think, forward-thinking, you know, technology view where we wanted to try a lot of newer, you know, technologies that were more in their springs rather than their autumns, you know, to take something from Steve Jobs. (laughs) You know, you want to make bets like that. But the mistake that we made was that we made a lot of bets on the technologies that we were using to build the product instead of making the tech bets on technologies that, you know, actually integrate with our product that our customers are using and really thinking about that ecosystem. It may sound very similar, but there is a subtle difference there. Uh, when we started the company, you know, we React was sort of in the second phase of its like hyper growth. You know, people were using React left and right for pretty much for every new project. Golang was really pick, picking up. And really simultaneously, that Kubernetes was really kind of getting a foothold across, you know, the SaaS world. So we had picked all three of those technologies. And I would say in retrospect, those decisions really hurt us because we as engineers, we had to learn those technologies simultaneously while you know trying to build something. And um, we made a lot of, I think, inefficient decisions because those technologies allowed us to do so. So Kubernetes is a great example of that because Kubernetes allows you to really segregate everything you know, w- through something called namespaces. We we're like, oh, let's create all this you know, separate virtualized infrastructure for every single one of our customers, which sounds mm-hmm. really great. And you can write a really impressive white paper about but it ends up being like incredibly costly and you have to build all these other tools and things to kind of fill in the gaps where the solution isn't really fully baked yet. So we ended up like pouring a ton of resources into that type of stuff instead of the product that people really were paying us for. And we ended up spending a lot of money through these inefficient decisions, not just in opportunity costs, but just frankly through our Google Cloud bill, where we were, you know, at one point spending like $2,400 a day just working through you know, just a few trial customers. It was unbelievably inefficient. So when we hit the reset button in 2019, we're like, all right, let's really flip the script here. Let's really make investments in things that are exciting, but they're exciting to our users. Like our users don't care what backend solution we're using. They don't really care how the infrastructure, you know, the, the specific technologies that are in the infrastructure, they just want it to be fast. They want it to work. And what they do care about are the integrations that we're bringing in. So like, Let's really invest in Slack and let's see what Slack is doing in terms of applications. Is there something to that? Let's then take the opposite approach on the back end and let's make very vanilla decisions that are going to be well-supported, that have mature technologies around them. And so it may sound insane, but we chose Ruby on Rails for our, our back end stack. We chose Heroku because it has the best support for that stack. 
And we chose just Postgres and Redis and basic things like that, that would allow us to really kind of rely on the expertise of others through hosted services versus trying to just do all the same things that, you know, have already been solved. And that ended up working incredibly well for us. And how has it been scaling? It's been scaling really well. You know, I would say that a lot of people come with the misconception that Rails can't scale and oh my God. And, sure, yeah. you know, you're going to really regret it. And, you know, look at what happened to Twitter. And, you know, there's all these sort of really scary things that happened in like the early 2011, 2012 period where people were using Ruby on Rails because it was the hot new thing. And then, you know, they got burned for it. But I think there's a lot more counterexamples to that. You have GitLab, you have GitHub, you have Shopify. These are all incredible companies that are using Rails. And they were able to scale and, in fact, scale to being in the top 10, you know, visited websites on the internet. So I think there's a lot of counterexamples there. And for us, you know, the majority of our scaling issues all relate to dumb things that we're doing on the database that are inefficient. They have nothing to do with the, the core technologies that we've, that we're facing. So we've been able to scale and, you know, because we have a ton of devices checking in, we've, you know, bursted up to, you know, a thousand requests per second on just wow. pretty vanilla Heroku uh, hardware. And that's growing uh, pretty substantially. We're always finding optimizations that, you know, drop the traffic because we can figure out a way to send less, or we're finding optimizations on how to get the most juice out of the, the the database, or how much work can we do asynchronously, and how efficient you know per second we can do those things. But those are all working, and uh, we don't expect to have to switch off of that primary stack that I talked about probably for the next two to three years, even at sort of exponential growth. And I think that's awesome, and I think it just shows you that. You can rely on other technologies and services to really handle that part. And um, you can really focus on your product. And that that is a true statement in 2019 and 2020. Sounds like a time saver, too. I mean, we've all been on projects where weeks and weeks went into sort of generic infrastructure decisions instead of the product itself. That's correct. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I really like Rails is because it it, it just makes those decisions for you. It's like, oh, you know, what should we call our foreign keys in the database? Should we use underscore? Should we use camel casing? Oh, you know, uh, you know, how are we going to, you know, name the tables? Are they going to be plurals? Are they going to be singular? Oh, this one has like a weird pluralization. What are we going to do for that? Those are all decisions that I, I'm sure there's people out there that are listening to this that love, absolutely love making those decisions. But for me, as someone who has a very small team, very narrow window in, in which we can succeed, those things are like death to me. I, I really can't stand them. And the fact that Rails takes on the perspective of we're just going to make those decisions for you because they're so arbitrary. Here they are. We're using underscores. We're using plurals here, but we're going to name the model singular, you know, nouns. That's what we're doing. And that's how it's going to work. You know, take it or leave it. I love that approach because it really just clears the field for us to talk about how are we going to write this, you know, remediation step-by-step -step instructions in a way it's compelling to a customer. Like we can spend all of our time on crafting that language versus like the minutia of what we're naming things in our, in our code base and where they should live and what folder structure they should be in. And sure. that's the difference. Makes sense to me. So with our last few minutes, I want to reflect a little bit. You entered an established space, security software, just, I, I imagine a, hundreds of millions of dollar industry with a new idea, a new product, a small startup, I'm sure many future founders are thinking now about how they might enter an established space and make waves in it. 
what advice would you have for someone who might be a little intimidated? Say they're entering the financial space with a startup or the medical space with a lot of big players already. What advice would you have for them? I guess the advice, and I think, you know, the optimism that I have for them, the thing that they should look at is there are definitely established businesses that are already doing SaaS software, likely in this area that you want to, you know, build your, your company in. But you need to look at how the environment is changing, um, especially as people change how they work. Corona, this coronavirus situation right now is no different. You know, this is a major shift culturally in how we are getting work done, which always opens up opportunities. And for us, that cultural shift started happening with Slack, where Slack created this surface for us where we could solve a problem that really couldn't be solved before because there was no medium to express the notifications that we wanted to send out to the users, where we wanted this very rich interaction with them. You couldn't do it over email. A web application works, but people don't want to be whisked away to another context. So it was this creation of this ecosystem that allowed us to do that. And I would say to other founders, look for these fundamental shifts and really think about the things that you're passionate about and do these new changes really open up an opportunity. And the reason why it's important to think about this as a scrappy startup is because the larger companies, they actually usually see those opportunities, but they're too big and the revenue opportunity is too small for them to attack them right away. So this gives you a really great reason to start investigating because for you, all you have to do is you know build up a business that's going to offset your opportunity costs, which is usually quite low, you know, depending on what your salary is today, you know, how old you are and things like that. So if you can, you know, really find that foothold there, that's something that you should look at. And that was us because there are security companies that are, you know, they're aware of what we're doing and they know that it's a threat. And some of them are already starting to try to figure out how can we do this, but it's, you know, kind of clashes with their existing surveillance heavy model. It doesn't quite make sense. There's less revenue there. It's not really where they need to be growing. And those are the opportunities that you need to look at. And if you can find them, you will be in really, really good shape. Wow, that's really good advice. And I guess my my last question for you is, what have you seen that surprised you? You've been in the security space for a while now. What has stuck out to you as something that you maybe weren't expecting to see? I guess what I was not expecting to see is how many companies, especially outside the US, maybe I shouldn't be too surprised by this, that really care about the privacy and the conditions that their employees work under. The only reason we were successful is because there was a base set of companies out there that really believe very strongly in creating a environment that it feels good to work for that company. Like there's no psychic cost that you're constantly enduring for being surveilled and things like that. The fact that that exists and it existed maybe outside of, you know, legislation and things like that. It's something that I'm, I'm kind of like a happy surprise that that's there and that People can see the value in what we're bringing. We don't have to do a ton of education. Now, on the flip side, there are companies that are still very much in that mode of surveillance, and we want to buy solutions that are going to allow us to surveil even more, especially now with companies that are working from home. But those are folks that are diminishing every day. They're they're realizing that that's not the right approach, and that makes me really happy. And I think that the scenario that I started with my career with it's one where it can be avoided in the future and companies can still you know, get the protection that they need uh, for the risks that are really going to be issues in their environment. And it's a balance. And I'm just super psyched that, that people are starting to get it. 
that's good to hear that the trend is moving toward user privacy rather than away from it and respect for the user ultimately, it sounds like. Absolutely. And we want to be there to, to, to kind of set the example. And uh, we're excited. Great. So how can our listeners learn more about Collide? Unlike other security companies, we just let you sign up. So you could do a 30-day <laughs> free trial at Collide.com. Or uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're just at Collide. Or if you want to follow me, at Jay Meller on Twitter as well. And would you spell Collide? K-O-L-I-D-E. All righty. Jason, thank you so much for joining Codish. It's been a great conversation. Corey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.